I, I smell a uh, I smell a good uh, non sequitur opening question here. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Ulfstrom. From the Gulf of Mexico to the Panhandle, and from the Rio Grande to the Red River, Texas borders encompass more than just a state, but a state of mind. Each border has a rich and fascinating history, a story to tell. Today we take a look at how the Lone Star State got its unique shape. But first, what's your favorite Texas swimming hole? Well, I'm going to have to say uh, Hamilton Pool is my favorite swimming hole in Texas. I've been there at least once. I think I've been there a couple of times when I was a kid. And it's just a beautiful, natural place to uh, go swimming. Well, I haven't been there, but I've read about it. And I want to make a trip to Jacob's Well, which is an underground cave system that bubbles up from a natural spring. Well, uh, I like, there's a couple, there's two that I really like, but the first one's Barton Springs, which is in Austin. It's a natural spring pool, but similar to Barton Springs out in West Texas, about as far West as you can get. It's, it's out near Alpine and Marfa out in the Big Bend area. It's at the Balmaria State Park. It's at Toya Vale, Texas. It is the world's largest swimming pool, and it is actually built on a spring and the back part of the deep part is a, is a natural spring going very deep and there's endangered fish there the only place in the world they know of it existing is in this swimming pool so if you want to go swim with some endangered fish in some really cold water out in the middle of the desert in west texas go out to toyaville it's a fantastic place i think you're confused with like a sultan's palace in dubai (laughs) i think that's that's where the world's largest swimming pool it's in dubai and it's got (laughs) stocked with exotic fish Texas borders stretch for nearly 3,000 miles. It runs along the Gulf of Mexico, the length of the Rio Grande, the New Mexico desert, back across the Great Plains, the Red River, the Piney Woods in the east, and then down the Sabine River. All of these borders have evolved over time, and their tale is the tale of Texas history. We're going to look at where these borders came from and what they mean to us today. So, what do you guys think Texas is shaped like? What's shaped like Texas? I mean... You look at it, and it's like there's nothing else shaped like it. It's shaped like a clock, I think, my grandma has on her wall. <laughs> or maybe a frying uh, pan that somebody I know has. Perhaps a trivet. I think, to place your pot. I think it's shaped like a really interesting-looking tea for Texas. But, I yeah. mean, Oklahoma is, Oklahoma is shaped like a meat cleaver. Wyoming Someone is shaped like that. a box. Um, Alaska is shaped like a like a pork shoulder or something. Don't talk about Florida because this is a, this is, we're not shaped going blue. like a boot. <laughs> but An I mean, upside down boot. The, the shape of Texas is just one of those shapes that right. it is what it is. Right. And it got there for a specific reason. Well, it's iconic. It's yeah. iconic. And it's something, I don't see a lot of people with Colorado and Oklahoma tattoos walking around. Exactly. It's not beautiful like Texas. Texas is the second largest state in the union. And its distinctive shape has evolved over the years as a result of political decisions as much as by geography. The earliest inhabitants of Texas, though, obviously did not see any borders the way that we view them today. What they would have found were distinct geographic regions, including the wooded lands in the east, forested coastal lowlands reaching into the south, deserts and mountains in the far west, and dominating the center, flat plains reaching deep into the heart of the state and ending in rolling hill country. Each of these geographic areas would attract different groups of people adapted to different ecologies and evolving over time until the first Europeans arrive, 
The earliest defined border, and probably the most obvious and unchangeable one, is the coast along the Gulf of Mexico. The coast makes a gentle southwesterly arc over around 375 miles and consists of barrier islands and several modestly sized bays created by the confluence of several rivers. Spanish explorer Alonso de Pineda sailed past and claimed what became the Texas coast in 1519 when he was attempting to map the lands to the north of Cuba. He produced the first known map of the coast of the Gulf of Mexico and the oldest document mentioning the territory that would become Texas. Of course, Spain claimed all of the New World, and Texas wasn't defined in any real way. Over the next century, there would be sporadic exploration of the area by conquistadors looking for cities of gold, as well as the travels of shipwrecked Spaniard explorer Cabeza de Vaca. In addition, some settlements were founded along the Rio Bravo, a long river that flows south and east from the Rocky Mountains into the Gulf of Mexico. But the Pueblo Revolt in what is now New Mexico drove Spanish settlements south of the river for many decades. For anyone who has never heard of the Rio Bravo, we now call it the Rio Grande. Now, as we talked about before on our French Texans episode, it would take France to help really create this definition of Texas. In 1682, explorer René Robert Cavalier, Sieur de la Salle, traveled down the length of Mississippi to its mouth and claimed all the lands drained by the river for Louis XIV of France. In 1685, he returned to what he thought was the mouth of the Mississippi to set up a colony. But, as we know, he found himself 300 miles off course in Matagorda Bay on the Texas coast. He soon realized his mistake, and he claimed all the land for France and set up a colony. The settlement was a failure, but a year prior to his death, he explored Texas extensively, possibly as far as the Rio Grande and Big Bend. The main accomplishment of La Salle was to create Spanish interests in populating the land between the Mississippi River and the Rio Grande, largely to keep the French from claiming it in the true, I don't want it, I don't want it but you can't have it style. Back off, Frenchie. <laughs> Through the early 1700s, Spain and France were at odds over who owned the territory. By 1716, the town of Natchitoches was founded in Louisiana on the Red River, a long tributary of the Mississippi. Spain founded the settlement of Los Ades around the same time, only a few miles away, and made it the capital of the new province of Texas. So Texas' first capital is in Louisiana, for what it's worth. In 1739, Spain and France agreed to make the Arroyo Hondo, which is now called Calcasieu, a river between the Mississippi and the Sabine River, as the border between their territories. But France never formally renounced its claims to the Rio Grande. Meanwhile, Spain combined the provinces of Texas and Cahuilla in what is now northern Mexico into one large province. In 1762, at the end of the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War, France lost almost all of her American colonies, and Spain wound up with all the French land west of the Mississippi. For practical purposes, the border between Spanish Texas and Spanish Louisiana remained the Arroyo Hondo in the east and the Red River as a natural tributary of the Mississippi to the northern boundary. In 1800, Napoleon pressured his ally Spain into returning French Louisiana in exchange for some land in Italy. The emperor agreed that he would never sell the land to the United States, who'd been trying to gain control over the Mississippi for some time. Of course, Napoleon being Napoleon, he turned around and sold everything to the Jefferson administration within three years for $15 million. The treaty did not specify which lands would be included, though, and President Jefferson would take the position that it included all lands claimed by France during colonial times, all the way to the Rio Grande. The whole thing was a bit of a point of contention for Spain, and they nearly went to war with the U.S. over it. Way to go, T.J.! <laughs> 
In 1805, U.S. troops under General James Wilkinson and Spanish forces under Colonel Simón de Herrera faced off in the land between the Sabine and the Arroyo Hondo. But the two commanders came to an agreement where they retreated beyond each river and left the ground between open as neutral territory to be claimed or settled by neither side. Obviously, they didn't want to go to war, but part of the reason for this was probably the fact that Wilkinson, who was the top-ranking general in the U.S. Army at the time, was also a Spanish spy. What a guy. For a decade and a half, the 200-mile-long, 30-mile-wide strip of land was a lawless zone where squatters, pirates, smugglers, outlaws, runways, and miscreants had their run of the territory and caused problems for both governments. And it should be noted that Lake Charles and most of Cajun country is in this area today. Well, that, that doesn't sound it hasn't out of changed character much. at all. Lawless, squatters, <laughs> yeah. smugglers, outlaws. Yeah, yeah, I can see it. Yeah, yeah, lots of reality TV yeah. people. Gotcha. In 1819, U.S. Secretary of State John Quincy Adams negotiated a treaty with his Spanish counterpart, Luis de Onís, over the long-standing disputes between the two countries. In addition to negotiating for Spain to cede Florida to the U.S., they also came to an agreement on the eastern border of the Spanish Empire. The Sabine River was agreed as the official border between Texas and Louisiana, from the Gulf of Mexico, about 150 miles north, to the 32nd parallel about where the river starts to bend west. From there, it was a straight line due north to the Red River. The Red River would be the border due west until the 100th meridian, and then due north another 100 or so miles to the Arkansas River, west to what was thought to be the headwaters of the 42nd parallel. This created a step border of Texas, which formed two of the steps. So just like that, Texas has three of its current borders, eastern, northern, and part of its soon-to-be iconic panhandle. It took a bit of work for the treaty to be ratified, but it was in 1821. The former neutral strip remained a lawless place that both the U.S. and later Texas governments had to deal with. Despite all the concessions Adams got from Spain, many in the U.S. were still unhappy that he gave away Texas. Some claimed that the Neches River, which flows into the Sabine near its mouth, was the actual border, but few were willing to force the matter. At any rate, Spain would soon be out, as Mexico gained its independence in 1821. The borders between the U.S. and the new nation would remain in place, and soon Anglo settlers started to move into Texas. It wasn't long before tensions between these new settlers, as well as native Tejanos, and the Mexican government would arise, some of them over the fact that Texas was joined with Cohia in a single state, despite the seemingly natural boundary in geography and culture that the Rio Grande formed. As we've seen in our past episodes, these tensions led to rebellion and, in 1836, the fight for independence. When Santa Ana was captured at San Jacinto, he wasn't the actual legal head of the state of Mexico. He transferred that authority to others prior to leaving for Texas. However, he was the head of Mexico's military, and he still called the shots politically in many ways back in Mexico City. Texas officials resisted the urge to hang him for the Goliad and Alamo massacres, and they managed to negotiate a treaty with him that formally ended the war and set the southern and western boundary of Texas with Mexico at the Rio Grande River. This river winds up mostly northwest until it makes a dramatic bend to the south, about 500 miles in, and then it curves back up northwest, forming the Big Bend National Park, and then flows pretty much north from, from El Paso all the way up to what is now Colorado. Of course, a couple of things actually worked against Texas actually exercising control of all this land. First, Neither nation bothered to ratify the treaty. Mexico refused to recognize Santa Ana's authority to make the treaty and rejected it. Texas refused to comply with the terms of the treaty where they had to let Santa Ana go right away. So legally, the treaty was never accepted by either side, though Texas still makes claims to the Rio Grande. 
Mexico, for the most part, still occupied the settlements on the southern Rio Grande and also the strip of land from the mouth of the Rio Grande to the Nueces River. Second, the Mexican settlements in New Mexico were not inclined culturally or practically to be a part of Texas. The Santa Fe Expedition of 1840 demonstrated that fact definitively. Finally, all the land in between the Anglo and Teano settlements in Texas and the new Mexican settlements were controlled by the Comanche, who weren't interested in what either side's ideas of political boundaries were. Imagine that. So when Texas was finally admitted into the United States in 1845, the land they controlled was pretty much all of eastern and northern Texas, about to generally where Interstate 35 runs today, as far south as Corpus Christi, which is where the U.S. Army under General Zachary Taylor went, since Mexico wasn't happy about the whole situation. It was pretty much certain that war would break out if the U.S. actually advanced to the Rio Grande, which is exactly what Taylor did, and is exactly what happened. After two years of war, Mexico was totally defeated by the U.S., and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo ended the war and set the new boundaries between the two countries. In addition to ceding all the lands north of the Gila River in Baja to the U.S., it also formalized the Rio Grande as the southern boundary of Texas, in effect formalizing the Treaty of Velasco, which was the treaty between the Republic of Texas and Santa Ana, Mexico. Texas now had its southern boundary, and at this point claimed a huge expanse of territory, including parts of what are now New Mexico, Colorado, and Oklahoma. The new lands added to the U.S., of course, presented a new set of problems for Congress, which was still deeply divided over the issue of slavery. New Mexico, Arizona, and half of California were below the 3630 parallel line, which had been set by the Missouri Compromise in 1820 as the northernmost limit of slavery in a new territory. While Texas was in favor of slavery, the former Mexican territories had no interest in allowing the practice into their settlements, and California had already declared itself a free state. There was also the worry that Texas would want to split into multiple slaveholding states, upsetting the slave-free state balance in Congress. In the end, the Compromise of 1850 temporarily settled some of these questions, even as it caused more problems for the country and was a major factor in driving us towards the Civil War. The Compromise called for Texas to give up its claim in exchange for paying off their public debt from the Republic time. The claim on New Mexico north of El Paso, as well as all the land north of the Missouri Compromise line. So the new western and northern boundaries were set, running along a straight line just north of El Paso from the Rio Grande about 225 miles, then forming a right angle with the straight line running north about 350 miles to the 3630 parallel. Then it was 100 miles east to the 100th meridian, completing the familiar panhandle shape. So that settles it, right? After 1850, we've got all our borders. Well, not so fast, partner. One of the problems with forming your borders on a river is that it's never really clear which part of the river belongs to who. I mean, it should be simple, right? That side of the river is yours, and this side is mine. But the rivers are also divided, so most treaties define the border using a river as the center channel of the river. But a peculiarity of nature is that rivers and their channels don't stay the same over time. Uh, They can move, quite a bit, actually, and the mission at Isleta was founded across the Rio Grande from El Paso. But over time, the river shifted, and Isleta found itself on the north bank of the Rio Grande instead of the south. But what happens if the maps you use to define a boundary weren't accurate and you find a fork in the river? Well, this happened with the Red River. About 50 miles east of the 100th meridian, where the Adams-Onis Treaty set the extension of American claims to the Red River, there was actually a fork. 
The North Fork heads north and west for about 80 miles before turning west towards the 100th meridian. The Prairie Dogtown Fork continues on a westerly course past the meridian into the Panhandle. Texas claimed that the North Fork was the true course of the Red River since it was longer and usually had more water flowing and organized the territory into Greer County in 1860. The Civil War and Indian Troubles prevented a resolution to the conflict, but eventually a lawsuit between the federal government, since Oklahoma was still a territory, and the state of Texas went to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1896. They ruled that the Prairie Dogtown Fork was the true stem of the Red River and Greer County returned to Oklahoma Territory, though the Texas settlers were allowed to keep their homesteaded land. This probably marks the only real victory Oklahoma has ever had over Texas. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's true. We might get some feedback on that. Well, so why are we talking about the shape of Texas and the borders? Again, this is one of those stories that came out of the very first discussions around starting this podcast. And, you know, I travel all over the place when I meet people, especially that aren't from Texas, and we talk about Texas and, you know, it's all I talk about people, Texas, Texas, Texas. They're probably sick of it. But it's an interesting habit of Texans is that we love the shape of Texas. We find it pleasing and beautiful. And it's it's unusual. Well, and it's it's unique. It's unique enough that you could go all over the world and show people the shape and be like, what is that? And a lot of people are going to be able to say, oh, that's Texas. Yeah. They, you know, you can't do the same thing. It's like, okay, here is, you know, what is this state? And it's like, well, I don't know. Is it New York, Delaware? I don't know. It's kind of squiggly lines. Italy comes to mind as one of those things of like the the Italian boot. Yeah. I think comes to mind as but there's some iconic shapes, but there's there's something oddly symmetrical about it. But it's yet it's kind of asymmetrical. Like, you know, it has an, it has a north and a south and an east and a west and a middle, and it just feels very. I don't know. There's just something about it. I can't. And it. And if you want, get get a piece of paper and a pencil, and sit down and just try to draw Texas, and you will look like something a third grader made, <laughs> like, like even adults who like know what they're doing. Old made. Yeah. It's very hard to draw the shape like properly. Like when you see it done properly, like oh, it's beautiful. And you... yet, and yet, if you sat down to draw it, whatever you come up with will be recognizable. Yes, it, that's true. It's it's much more difficult. For you to say, sit down and say, okay, now draw me Montana or draw Kansas. Well, you can draw Colorado pretty easily, but not Texas. But the thing is, is that Texas has a combination of arbitrary borders and geographic borders. And, and there are reasons for both of those being selected. And that's what's, that's what builds and adds to the character of Texas. I think is that it was a process. It was not something it was not like Italy, which is defined by its geography and its features, and it, it, its shape defines Italy or Greece. Its shape and its geography define it. It is something that it was a process that was come to over a course of about 300 years. Um, and it also has relevance, relevance today. In the late 80s, they actually founded a boundary commission between Texas and Oklahoma because the Red River was shifting so much, it actually has multiple channels even within the main river. So, so, the, so as the question of water rights continues to be an issue between, between states and within states, then the borders still need to be discussed. The borders with Mexico, there are parts of what was Mexico is now part of Texas and vice versa because of the Rio Grande. Well- I'm just going to give everybody out there listening a pro tip. If you're in Texas or you're thinking of moving to Texas, I would say you want to stay a good 
50 to 100 miles away from Louisiana, Arkansas, <laughs> Oklahoma. You know, give come yourself come into the borders. Yeah, come into Texas. Give yourself a little breathing room yeah. so you don't have those other states breathing down your neck and <laughs> my my in-laws live in Orange and they are literally probably a quarter of a mile from the Louisiana border. Their houses. My wife grew up a quarter of a mile from Louisiana border. But there is still a difference between Orange, Texas and Sulphur, Louisiana, which is just across the border. They are totally different worlds. Mm, and sulfur. just like there's a difference between Denison, Texas, and just across the border into Oklahoma, they are totally different worlds. And that's, that's still what makes character, Texas character so special. It's a shared experience, too, a thing, too, of, you know, you know, there was this notion that came out a few years ago as the Internet sort of boomed that, you know, people connect and relate and talk about things and they find, form these sort of ideas of tribes, these, this new idea of electronic tribes of I'm really into this thing and I find other people who are into this thing I'm into. You don't have to look far to find people who are into Texas that live <laughs> in Texas. And we're just into it. We're just we're. It doesn't matter whether you know how old or young you are. You're just into it, and you and you get it right down into your bones. And you see that shape, and that it's in. I think we threw around the title earlier, uh, a most pleasing shape. Yes, and it is a most pleasing shape. Yeah. It's comforting to see the shape of Texas on things because you immediately identify that is Texas. That is my home. Like tattoos. Yeah, tattoos or your hat that you're wearing, Scott. Yep. I, uh, you know, we, we joked about it at the beginning, but like there's a whole, there are whole cottage novelty industries that make Texas-shaped <laughs> everything, Texas-shaped waffle irons. I found a Texas-shaped sandwich cutter for kids' sandwiches at Walmart the other I've seen day. a Texas-shaped skillet. Texas-shaped cornbread skillet. Pancake yeah. molds. Yeah, pancake molds. Oh, I, I smell a, uh, I smell a good uh, non sequitur opening question here. <laughs> Texas-shaped ice cube trays. What is your favorite Texas-shaped novelty? <laughs> uh, shoot, well, let's not waste that gold on these people. <laughs> um, well, even uh, you see cars driving around in our area of David Te- McDavid Honda. Texas-shaped cars. Yeah. Well, no, there, oh. there's. You know, car dealer will put their 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 sticker or their emblem on a on the back of a car that they sell. David McDavid's is a local dealership chain. It is the shape of uh, kind of a uh, an inflated shape of Texas, but with David McDavid in there, and it's like the Texas forms the outside of the sticker, and it's like, hey, that's David McDavid, and then he's from Texas. Well, if you're here in Dallas, uh, you might want to drive up to Richardson because I don't know exactly where it is, but there's a Texas shaped swimming pool there. Yep. There is in, in Richardson. There's also one I grew up in near Normandy in Hilltop Lakes, and the the country club had a Texas shaped swimming pool, and you can you can see it on Google Maps. So so just in case you're wondering, it's this random shape that came about from geographic and political and military reasons, but it's the optimal, scientifically <laughs> most optimal shape for skillet, stepping stone for your garden, clock for your wall, or swimming pools. Exactly. It's probably Texas-shaped dog treats. I'm sure there's Texas-shaped everything. Well, I so tell you, you what, I and, every every and, and there's there's nothing in the world that can't be improved by making it in the shape of Texas. All right, everybody, go to your computers right now. Open your Facebook. Open your Twitter. Find your favorite Texas-shaped novelty item and send it to us yes. and at Texas Podcast. Or at facebook.com slash Texas podcast. Yes, we want to hear about them and we'll talk about them. <laughs> yeah. That would be great. That wraps things up for today. 
You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Jala. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.